Welcome to Debate and Discussion, a podcast presented by Xavier Newswire. I'm your host, Leighton Gamage. During the episode, I will be joined by guests who will debate a controversial topic related to Xavier or current events. Today's topic is the future of U.S. foreign policy in the wake of Afghanistan. I am joined by Newswire's world news editor, Sophie Bultur, and Newswire's audio editor and contributor of What in the World segment on Newswire Live, Sebastian Aguilar. Now to Sophie for her opening statement. Take it away, Sophie. Hi, everyone. So the fundamental reality of international relations is that nation states all have their own geostrategic interests. And these interests might be economic, they might be political, they might even be, you know, liberal, conservative, some sort of philosophical interest. And so nation states have the challenge of balancing these different interests when pursuing foreign policy. That's why I'm convinced that you can't just claim to be an interventionist and you can't just claim to be a non-interventionist. You have to consider the different realities of your age and the different interests that your state is contending with and make your foreign policy decisions based off of that. Okay, thank you, Sophie. Sebastian, what's your opening statement? So I abide by the crazy idea that the U.S. should not play world police anymore due to its foreign policy being almost entirely based on the exploitation of other countries that we've helped in quotations in the past and based on continued exploitation of third world countries now. My core belief is that the U.S. should pull out all of its military positions in the Middle East, Eastern Europe, or Latin America unless expressly stated by those countries that they want the help. What did you make of Biden's administrative decision to withdraw from Afghanistan? Sophie, I'll let you go first. Well, I think that the decision was necessary because most of our involvement in the Middle East, I agree with Sebastian, has been total shambles. It, we've just made much of the problems even worse through our involvement. And also, we really don't have much of a geostrategic interest in the Middle East. If you look at the up-and-coming countries that we should be focused on, you know, it's, it's China, it's India— and it's not the Middle East, so we really shouldn't have been there in the first place, in my opinion. Um, the way that we did the withdrawal was problematic, in my opinion, though. Um, we did it without much thought of the power vacuums that we could live that we could leave, you know, in return. And we didn't even give a thought to the rise of the Taliban, of course, and that obviously caused a lot of problems and is continuing to cause a lot of problems. You know, I just saw an article that women are being barred from secondary education in Afghanistan. And so I think that though, of course, we needed to leave, we needed to leave, I think, in a way that made sure that we weren't, you know, just leaving a power vacuum that could be filled by terrorists. Okay, Sebastian? Yeah, uh, I also agree that Biden definitely screwed the pooch on the Afghanistan withdrawal <laughs> due to not propping up uh, allies such as the um, tribes of the Northern Pass that have been staunch anti-Taliban forces. There was no real good way to leave because we kind of made it so that they rely on us in totality, basically, for protection. So any way we were going to leave was going to be just a bad time period for the country. 
Um, so going off of what Sebastian said, I was wondering, what do you think would have been the best way for us to leave that scenario or situation? That's a good question. I would say that we should have considered our current allies, you know, as the people that Sebastian brought up, but also, you know, the Kurds and different people in the region that, you know, have been working with us and we've just kind of ignored. Um, but I, I suppose that there's never an easy way to, you know, end a war. There's never an easy way to leave the region. And no matter what you do, there'll always be, you know, loose ends that'll need to be tied up. But if we could avoid letting those loose ends, you know, take over a government, that, that would be great. Ideally, we would have uh, coordinated with uh, Iran and Pakistan to keep the Taliban in check and to keep Taliban from taking over with, they did it in like a month, not even. That was record time for them. So we definitely should have coordinated with countries that had a geopolitical stake in the region because the Taliban controlling Afghanistan is bad for every like actual stable country in the area, regardless of if they philosophically or politically align with them. Is there a moral obligation for the U.S. to be involved in political affairs across the world? Sebastian, I'll let you answer this one first. The U.S. does not have a moral obligation to the rest of the world. Historically, the U.S. has been a very isolationist country. And only until like World War I and II have we ever become this international world police nation that we currently are. And in doing so, we've made enemies across the globe, specifically in the Middle East, which we keep uh, a military presence in. With our so-called moral foreign policy that we've had, for example, like invading Vietnam or the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. I don't think that those were exactly moral causes that we made the greatest decision in doing. And I think that it's really all a, a big sham to just exploit more places. Sophie, your opinions? Well, I think firstly, the the question itself of asking if there is a moral obligation, I think is a little bit flawed because states shouldn't be moral actors. At the end of the day, the only people that can morally reason are individuals. And I think much of the problem of our foreign policy has been ascribing moral duties to states when states aren't moral actors. And I think that a lot of the problem in past U.S. foreign policy, such as the Iraq War, was that we had politicians arguing that states could be moral actors and they went on their, you know, religious right crusade to pursue these wars because they thought that they were moral and that the state's obligation was to ensure morality. Now, states aren't moral actors. However, they do sometimes have the obligation to invade countries if it's in the geostrategic interest of the country. And I don't, I'm not going to define that super broadly and say like we can invade whenever we want. No, but if there is like a specific thing that it, like if there's going to be, for example, some sort of ethnic cleansing, we always have to in intervene in those situations. I, I'll, I'll draw, draw the red line there. You always have to intervene when there's some sort of interest like that. Um, otherwise, I think that countries still need to uh, reserve their militaristic rights because if you don't, if you just say we're not going to intervene and that's it, 
then the country isn't going to be taken seriously enough in the world and will lose a lot of its prestige and power on the world stage. What would you say to the individuals who believe that the U.S. has a duty to prevent communism, such as the domino theory, as was the case in the wake of World War II? So the domino theory in some ways was correct in that, you know, it, it, communism had the potential to spread across regions, and we, we did see that happening. However, I don't necessarily think that we are any better or worse off by preventing, you know, communism from spreading, especially because many countries that were or are communist are still very willing to work with the United States. It's not really our business, I don't think, unless they got to communism through really terrible oppression. And I think in that case, we have more of a moral license to intervene I'm thinking, you know, of like Cambodia, for example. But I, I think like with China, for example, we, we would have no license to intervene when they were becoming communist. They, they weren't, you know, with the exception of Mao, which was ugh, not good. Um, I think that in general, the communism, while unfortunate, isn't necessarily our business. I think that while... The domino theory was certainly true in areas like after, for example, after China became communist and they started influencing other areas in like Southeast Asia, invading like Korea and turning Vietnam and Cambodia. These areas weren't like geopolitically important to the United States and they weren't important countries in general. So they were pretty much like backwater uh, countries that didn't matter on the world stage. So it shouldn't have really mattered to us if some random country turned communist. It was only uh, when countries like in Latin America, on our like home continent that we have dominion over, started like becoming uh, communist or even like slightly more left-leaning than the U.S. likes that we actually started to care about it. That's why we assassinated leaders in Chile, Guatemala, Argentina with like Operation Condor, specifically in Guatemala with the president just advocating for land reforms by giving away land owned by... American fruit companies to the indigenous Mayan people that actually like lived on them. What trade or military policies should the U.S. government focus on moving forward? Sebastian, I'll let you handle this one. So uh, I believe that the U.S. should focus on going forward. China is obviously our biggest rival economically. So I think we should reduce our reliance on Chinese manufacturing and Chinese goods by incentivizing companies to incentivize trade with our own allies and oppose China economically via like sanctions or just not having trade agreements with them or by increasing U.S. manufacturing or increasing manufacturing in North and South America rather than Chinese-dominated markets. Well, I, I disagree there. I think that that's a very protectionist point of view and the idea that we need to totally disalign with China, I think, will be very upsetting to markets. And I, I would be very surprised to see much gr economic growth that could come from protectionist economics in general. And I think that at the end of the day, China is a diplomatic foe, but not necessarily an economic foe. And so we should continue our economic engagement with China without trying to freeze them out in that sort of way, but, you know, continue to press them when it comes to human rights and 
other, you know, governmental abuses. It does reflect badly on the U.S. and all of its tenants, like free liberty and freedom, uh, human rights and all that. When we move all of our manufacturing to China, which has all these grotesque human rights abuses and everything. So it really is a bad look for the U.S. to preach all these liberal ideas, but then just go back on them to make profit. Well, what's the alternative, though? You know, I, I mean, you can say that about so many other countries that make our stuff. So I think that, that the idea that economic disalignment is going to actually perpetuate political change is inherently flawed. I, I don't see that there's much actual, you know, incentive there. Because, yeah, we move our stuff, obviously, they'll take a hit, but... Other countries aren't moving their stuff. We, you know, we keep trying, and it didn't work. All the stuff that like Trump did during his administration when it came to protectionism, it didn't work. And so Biden has kind of tried to do it still. And like Germany, for example, France, like all of our allies, just they're not with us on this one. They, it, it's just I, I don't see it working. While our allies aren't exactly on the same page as I would be on this instance, it is very much um, just like example with protesting and picketing if uh or the whole like oh vote with your wallet type of thing if everybody's not on board with it it won't work like you said so if western europe and the eu in general are still like super down with chinese manufacturing and all that then obviously it's not going to work but i would propose um investing in for example india or even like vietnam now which is um, a huge manufacturing powerhouse in its own right, and India with its own industries popping up, which we've started investing in a little bit. I think that shifting our economic interests from China to India is a much more viable choice and a much more palatable choice rather than continuing this route with China who has gross human rights abuses and also economically kind of screws over countries that it puts investments in. For example, like with all of its investments in Africa and some Latin American countries. But it, in terms of India, doesn't India also have pretty gross human rights abuses as well? India does. However, they're at a much smaller scale. And with Are its, they? I would argue so. <laughs> but also historically, since there's a lot more groups in India, not many can actually like hold power like the totalitarian state that China is. So it's much easier to kind of rein in India than it would be to rein in China. For the last question of the night, should the U.S. pull out of international alliances and trade groups such as the United Nations and NATO? Yeah. Sophie? No, <laughs> definitely not. That would be a really terrible idea. Um, so these international alliances are in place for a reason, and that's to facilitate dialogue among countries that oftentimes won't bother talking to each other otherwise. You know, much of our diplomatic engagement with China, for example, comes through these international alliances. And also so much of the things that really underpin our national security and including, you know, ongoing Security. So, for example, the recent security alliance between the UK and the US and Australia, that got agreed at one of these summits. We need these because we have to create this international community that's all invested in essentially not killing each other. You know, that, that's, that's what we're trying to avoid here is nuclear Armageddon. You know, that at the end of the day, you know, I'll say it, that, that's what we're trying to avoid. And 
because of these international organizations, we don't allow things to get so terrible that that becomes the implicit fear in the back of everyone's mind. We don't need to go back to another Cold War, and these international organizations make it so we don't have to. Yeah, no, I, I definitely uh, agree with not leaving the UN, not leaving NATO. Um, I would argue, in fact, that we should only bolster our investments towards both of those things. But I would also say that with the UN, I do think that the U.S. should relinquish its permanent security member status along with the rest of the permanent security members in order to actually facilitate it as an international body instead of a Western Europe-dominated body. And that would actually facilitate actual international uh, reconciliation when they actually seem to have a choice in the matter, whereas currently with every permanent security member, if they veto a motion, it just dies right there. And the U.S. has done that on so many counts. Same with Russia and China. If something doesn't fly with any of those, it doesn't pass, even if every other country is on board. So the only way I think that international change can happen and international like coexistence with, for example, like avoiding nuclear Armageddon, it's really only the countries that have these nuclear arms that are the ones on the Permanent Security Council. So if they relinquish their claim to it, then I think that the UN would actually have much more teeth and be much more of a regulatory body for the world and facilitate actual positive change than it is now. So I agree that the UN is a totally ineffectual body, and it, it's just actually, it, it's, it's laughable how little the UN can actually get done. It, it's, it's ridiculous. However, I don't think the U.S. should give up its seat. I think that that's actually quite important to maintaining American national security is giving us this permanent veto. But I do think that vetoes for some of the other countries that have them should be rethought. You know, for example, and, and this is hard for me to say because, you know, I, I, my family's from England. I really care about the U.K., but the U.K. does not need a permanent seat. We, we, we don't, they, they do not need that seat on the council. France doesn't need the seat on the council. But there are some other countries like India, for example, that I think definitely should have a seat. And I think that we need an ongoing conversation about which countries have seats and which ones don't, because at present, it's reflecting a world order that doesn't really exist anymore, unfortunately. Um, the, there's, the way that the geopolitical outlook is, it's not as it was in 1950. Well, we agree that on the uh, fact that some members should leave their seats off the Permanent Security Council, I would actually argue that instead of just certain ones removing it, I would either do an all remove or a just include way more seats on the Permanent Security Council. India should definitely have a Permanent Security Council seat. Um, Korea, South Korea should definitely have a Permanent Security Council seat. Uh, so should places like Saudi Arabia and Egypt should also have their own Permanent Security Council seats for that specific region and also like Latin American countries such as Argentina, Chile, and Brazil should also have permanent security council seats. But I, I guess to push back on that a little bit, um, if every country, like if all those countries have seats, isn't that just going to create the same problem that we have right now in terms of things not getting done? Because like things are getting aren't getting done now. Then if wouldn't just adding way more countries to it make the problem even worse? Yeah, the because currently there's. The permanent security, as you know, the uh, permanent security council and like the rotating one, 
Yep. Um, and the rotating one, they don't they don't do anything. It's yep. literally just oh, we wish we had a seat, <laughs> the council. But the places that you the countries that you said like you'd remove the voting power from, those are the ones that don't even use their voting power. Like it's really the problem countries in this scenario are the ones that you say should keep their voting power. So it's the US, China, and Russia are the big three that are like actually just voting down motions left and right. I feel that even if like adding more countries to this permanent security council, that actually matters, it would be better than it is now because at least it's a symbolic representation of like an actual United Nations instead of just Western Europe and then China. I think that maybe something that might satisfy both of us is if at the very least, Russia got booted off because I in terms of the other countries that have seats I think that Russia especially when you look at Russia economically their actual power is much lower than they like to pretend you know yeah. they, they they don't actually have much economic power um, they're not that high up on the GDP scale. Um, their political power is literally just, you know, a dictator who's, you know, actually getting pressed very strongly by Alexei Navalny at the moment. I think that at the very least, they, they should lose their seat. Yeah, I mean, Russia has fallen far from the uh, graces of its former glory uh, in the 50s and stuff like that. Like, as you've said, the UN Permanent Security Council is just a relic of the Cold War era, just geopolitics in general. Like, even like China, it used to be Taiwan that had the seat before we decided we're going to recognize China now. I feel like just, rem obviously, I'd be down if Russia lost their permanent security member seat. But that doesn't fix the problem entirely, because we still have... The problem in itself is the fact that any of these countries could just vote down a motion and it, like, they could be the only one that votes no against it and it dies right there, even if the rest of the permanent security members are down for it. So that's the real issue here. Yeah, I mean, that that's true, but I'm just thinking about when this is actually going to harm the U.S., you know, if, if they get rid of that and then a motion gets passed that really directly harms the United States, then we have no recourse to actually fight that, you know? So I think that it might need to be something that should be preserved just purely because of our own internal security. Ending on that note... What are your final thoughts on American foreign policy and the future of the U.S. foreign policy? Sophie, I'll let you go first. So in terms of our foreign policy, I think the most important thing is for Americans, you know, as individuals to actually get interested in it. It's really embarrassing and sad how little most Americans know about foreign policy and foreign affairs. And so the most important thing is to actually educate our citizens on what's going on outside of the United States. And once we've done that, I think that we'll be able to have more robust conversations about the future of foreign policy. Now, where do I think that future should go? I think we need to be focusing on climate change. I think we need to be focusing on making sure that we are able to preserve people's rights abroad without, you know, getting some sort of going on all these moralistic crusades. We need to, for example, be focusing on providing foreign aid to help women's rights. Um, and I would say also 
looking at the ways that climate change has led to different natural crises around the world and how it's aided and abetted the migration crisis in Europe and beyond. Um, I think that at the end of the day, though, none of these issues will ever be solved if we don't have personal engagement with these topics. And so that's the first step is to get people in the United States engaged with foreign policy. Sebastian? I definitely agree that more people in the U.S. should be interested in foreign policy because, like Sophie and I, we're, we're very much intrigued by international relations and foreign policy. And in the U.S., it's very um, sort of a very America-centric society, as you've grown up in and realized for yourselves. Um, and that kind of makes us feel superior to the rest of the world. So just by learning about foreign policy and learning that we're just like a big fish in a pond, that really opens your eyes to the rest of the world and how like everything is connected geopolitically. But yeah, specifically with US foreign policy, uh, it's been trash, it is trash, um, and it does not seem to be getting better. But if we can focus on specifically like the thing that we should focus on the most is climate change for sure and then just repairing our, our reputation across the world because it is in the dumpster, uh, like, abroad. What are your thoughts on the future of the U.S. foreign policy? Send us your thoughts or feedback to our email, xaviernewswire at gmail.com. Sophie, Sebastian, and I all had the experience to go to Cincinnati's Oktoberfest this past weekend. Sophie, how was your experience? Oh, I loved it. It was the perfect amount of people. You know, it wasn't like so crowded that I felt like I was catching COVID, but it was crowded enough to feel like, you know, I was out somewhere. So it was nice. I had a great daiquiri. I didn't, okay, I'll expose myself here. I didn't actually have any beer, but I did have a really nice daiquiri. So yeah, I, I liked it. It was good. Sebastian? Oh, man. Uh, Oktoberfest, this is my first Oktoberfest that I've been here since... Uh, I've been at Xavier, and now that I'm 21, took it in full force. I had many a brew. I had the uh, I went to the Rheingeist booth a few times to grab. I got the the Wowie, which is like a pineapple and green apple beer. I got like the uh, the Oktoberfest special one. That one is pretty bad. Don't like it. Uh, not a fan of like bitter beers. I'm much more of a sour beer guy. A lot of fun booths out there got some schnitzels a lot of a lot of fun live music great time overall for me personally i am from southern of the united states so i never really had a bunch of german food so going to oktoberfest was a real culture awakening i had a potato pancake i had cream puffs and let me tell you they were absolutely amazing and i am very excited for whenever I do turn 21, to just take it in a full force. Aside from that, the live music was just phenomenal. I, there's no other word I can describe it. Everyone was cheering and dancing and singing, and it was just 10 out of 10. I would highly recommend for everyone to go next year. Now, the real question. Did any of you guys have bratwurst or sauerkraut? Your ideas on them? Uh... No, though I did have strudel, and it was lovely. Okay, so I actually did have bratwursts. Uh, I specifically got the currywurst, which was a, a brat loaded up with sauerkraut and, like, drenched in curry sauce. Uh, gotta say, curry sauce immaculate on there. 
They put way too much sauerkraut, though. That thing was, like, drowning. That was, like, Cincy... That was, like, Skyline levels of uh, cheese. Or levels of, like, stuff on the brat. It was... I was getting bites of just all sauerkraut. Definitely, they need, like, half of that on there. Hot take from Hunter. Sauerkraut is objectively the worst food. Which I 1,010% agree on. The only thing worse is Skyline Chili. Anyways. Hey, hey, hold up. <laughs> Skyline, it's not that bad. Uh, it's pretty good. They just got too much cheese, and I'm not a big cheese guy. So, but not a big the chili, guy. fire. Love that. Um, but yeah, sauerkraut, it's, it's okay. It's like, a, it's like a mid-tier topping on things. As far as regional vegetable toppings, I, I prefer like jardinera. Or something, Ooh. but like sauerkraut's alright. Sophie, what's your takes on sauerkraut? Never had it, and I don't, don't. think that I ever <laughs> will. <laughs> it kind of scares me. I'm a little bit intimidated by yeah. sauerkraut. You know what I mean? Like, and the things of the same vein, like coleslaw. Ugh, I would say is like disgusting. I would say it's better than sauerkraut as well. Ugh. So sauerkraut's like B tier, C tier of a uh, food. Thank you, Sophie and Sebastian, for joining us on this debate and discussion podcast. Thank you. Had a blast. Thank you to everyone who contributed to this episode of Debate and Discussion, including Editor-in-Chief Alex Bozinski, Print Managing Editor Mo Jinger, Multimedia Managing Editor Hunter Ellis, Show Manager Will Pembroke, Audio Editor Sebastian Aguilar, AV Technician Lily Cotton, and our guest for today, World News Editor Sophie Poulter. 